Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I don't think hoity-toity is a thing you use anymore. What what are you talking about? I don't think it's a thing you can say to people anymore. What did it did it did it cross a line? Well, it, did, like, well, it, it no, after it a certain year. Oh, you're not can't say can't say that anymore. Doesn't well, it doesn't sit well. It's an anachronism. It's like uh, human chess. It's 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 a thing that you just that that a gentleman does not do. I still play human chess. What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't dress up like a chess and do the thing. You don't no, do the I, whole thing on a field. I have a whole bunch of people do it, and I tell them where to move. You do not do that. That's, Please don't tell me you do that. It makes me incredibly me. uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't. A gentleman does not associate, does not practice nor associate with others who perform human chess. <laughs> you know, I joke, but uh, that was, uh, you know, human chess is a big deal. It's, you know what it is? Yeah. What? It's very, it's very hoity-toity. Boom! Okay, everybody, welcome to the next reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson. Must be the end of the year show. <laughs> hey, happy new year, right? Happy new year. Because that's right. This is uh, this is our new year. Mm-hmm. It's officially January, and uh, we're so glad that you're here, giving us kicking off uh, yet another year uh, of movie spoilage. And we're so glad that you uh, put your movie spoilage in our capable hands. Uh, if, before we get started, head over to thenextreel.com and you can learn more about the show. You can catch up with our back episodes and uh, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you have a, a few stars left, why don't you kick off the new year by going into iTunes and leaving us a five-star review. That would be really, really swell. We haven't asked for that in a long time, but it really does help people uh, discover the show. And, and what a great episode to discover this show with. That's what I'm saying. Let's do trailers. Uh, I think I'm going to go first because yours is is, uh, certainly more fun. It's certainly more fun and certainly more fitting. Yes. Yeah. It'll be be a better segue. Yes. Although yours, the, you know, the the titular item of yours is featured in, <laughs> in our movie. <laughs> yeah, true to form, I am doing uh, cake. I'm doing cake, which is actually uh, if you are if you're in one of the limited release cities, you uh, very well uh, may have seen this film already. Um, it or you should. Uh, directed by Daniel Barnes, uh, written by Patrick Tobin, stars. Jennifer Aniston, Anna Kendrick, Britt Robinson, Misty Upham, Sam Worthington, Mamie Gummer. It stars. Uh, it stars a lot of people. William H Macy, Felicity Huffman is bananas crazy out of character in this film. It looks really, really good. Jennifer Aniston uh, plays uh, Claire, 
she initiates a dubious relationship with a widower while confronting fantastical hallucinations of his dead wife. Uh, this film, I'm saying it, the reason it's, it, it's, it is the season, the reason we're seeing it trickle out in December is because Jennifer Aniston stands a chance uh, at the Oscar for this role. And particularly in in a year with uh, rather grim pickings for Best Actress, I think mm-hmm. she she's sitting high on her horse in this one. What do you think? She looks amazing in this. I mean, the it looks like a really interesting film. First off, um, but watching it, uh, this was the one where she opted to not use any makeup at all, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just, and she said that, you know, she felt like it was kind of a transformative thing and she really does. I mean, she's, she's stepped out of the box a few times. I mean, she did the, the, um, what was that one she did with Jake Gyllenhaal, um, the good girl. Oh yeah. Um, so she's, and she's kind of played around with some more serious sorts of roles before, but this one certainly looks like the one that is going to be the, the opportunity for her to really. Um, show people that she can really do um, a wide variety of stuff and and do some pretty powerful stuff um, to boot. And so, uh, you know, I think this one looks uh, really good, and I'm quite excited to see it. I, I am too. It comes out uh, in wide release uh, in just a couple of weeks, uh, January 23rd in the U.S. Uh, so if you have seen it, let us know what you think. Head over to Facebook and uh, and give us your thoughts. Otherwise, uh, catch it in January. Excellent. What's yours? Well, uh, you know, mine mine fits very nicely in with what we're actually uh, discussing tonight. Uh, big disaster film. Um, it is the over the top, uh, ridiculous disaster movie San Andreas, uh, which is coming out next May. Uh, Memorial Day weekend looks like it's going to be the explosive film of that weekend. See what I did there? <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it it looks just uh, over the top, ridiculous disaster. San Andreas Fault, of course. Um, you know the, the massive earthquake rips apart California, according to Paul Giamatti, who's in it. Says you know this is an earthquake that people on the East Coast are going to feel. So one of those earthquakes, and um, of course, then you have the uh, you know just like our our film tonight, it has the all star cast um, headed up by none other than the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, um, as a uh, as a what is he? Is like a, a rescue. Uh, yeah, it's like a helicopter pilot. pilot yeah. yeah, he goes in and rescues, and of course he has to go find his daughter somewhere in the uh, rubble of San Francisco that's all falling down. His daughter is Alexandra Daddario, and uh, you know she's been in the uh, the Percy Jackson films, and uh, you know, unfortunately in the Texas Chainsaw 3D film. And then you also have Carlo Gugino in there. You've got Ian Griffith. You've got, like I said, Paul Giamatti. Archie Panjabi is in this. Uh, Kylie Minogue is in this. Weirdly. <laughs> Um, which is kind of a strange name to see pop up in there. And then the uh, the man who seems to uh, be popping up in a lot of these big disaster movies, or at least Godzilla, uh, Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe. Is <laughs> <laughs> one. So it looks it looks ridiculous, it, but it looks exactly like what a disaster movie is supposed to do. You know, shake things up, and then people have to survive. I will probably see this. I don't know if I'll watch it in theaters, but it looks like a kind of dumb fun that I can just put on at some point. Uh, Brad Payton is directing it. 
Um, he's not. Uh, he's one of those directors. If you look at his filmography, it's definitely geared towards stuff for younger viewers. Uh, Cats, Cats and Dogs: The Revenge of Kitty Galore was his uh, theatrical debut, and then he did mm, that was Journey. A stunner. <laughs> yeah, right. And then he did Journey to the Mysterious Island, which uh, you know I have to say that's kind of a, a guilty family pleasure for uh, me and the kids. They love watching that movie. Um, there's something about all the giant, uh, giant creatures, the it's giant the lizards and bees, and you know all that stuff, and the little tiny flying elephants and stuff. You know, like, or they, I guess they're not flying. <laughs> they're not the flying little, elephants, but the little yeah, tiny little, elephants. Yeah, little tiny elephants. It's it's a very fun movie to watch with the kids. So you know, I think Brad Payton, you know, he's kind of got uh, a good sense of creating an entertaining film. And uh, this is a, a little more serious than those other two films. And you know. I, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be cake, but you know it'll be entertaining. I I have some real time correction. Mm. I think this is not the Ken Watanabe. I think it is. It's a different Ken Watanabe. It is a much you, younger Ken Watanabe, who has only oh, been in three movies. You are right. There are two Whoa. Ken Watanabe. This is. According to IMDb, there's at least seven. <laughs> Just when you think they broke the mold, it turns out they actually did forget to break the mold. There are many Ken Watanabe's. Yes. Leave it to us to be idiots. Hey, we just we just uncovered, I think, a cabal. <laughs> this is a cabal of Ken Watanabe's. Wow. wow. A, a Kabatanabe is what they call that. But at least it's not DJ Ken Watanabe. No. At least, at least we can say that. No. <laughs> Guarantee you he's not in this. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, there you go. I'm excited Excellent. about it. I I love the big the rock in the rocks. That's right. <laughs> and you uh, know what? Frankly, San Andreas. Given, I mean, I know we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it uh, crumble in Superman the movie. Yeah. What other giant disaster movie have you seen about Sandra San Andreas Fault? Uh, Volcano. Was that also that was? I guess that's right. Wasn't it? it wasn't I just don't. I just don't recall a, a movie dedicated to because the volcano was dedicated to a volcano. Well, yeah, just a well, lava well, coming up in the San city. Andreas ruptured and yeah. it caused all the you know the lava to bubble up. Through but here's LA. here's what I hope is that finally we will see a, a cinematic depiction of California becoming an island. That's what I want to see. Yeah, what people always keep saying. That's what they keep saying. About time, we need to see that. <laughs> People are calling for it. Oh, hey, uh, Andy. Yes. Who do you think you are, God Himself? What does it look at? I never saw anything like it. An enormous wall of water coming towards us. In the early morning hours of New Year's Eve, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Carol Lindley, Roddy McDowell, Stella Stevens, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, Pamela Sue Martin. Arthur O'Connell, Eric Shea, and Leslie Nielsen were aboard the SS Poseidon when it was hit by a 90-foot tidal wave. Oh, my God. And capsized. The Poseidon Adventure. The most exciting escape adventure of our time. Now follow me. It took the lives of the 1,400 people on board and changed the lives of the few who would survive. Climbing to another deck will kill you all. And sitting on our butts is not going to save us either. Don't look down. 
you think you are, God himself? That's the way out. The Divine Talents of 15 Academy Award winners bring you Irwin Allen's production of The Poseidon Adventure, a Ronald Neem film coming from 20th Century Fox. This, uh, this film, uh, of course, you know, we haven't even said it uh, officially. This is the, the Poseidon Adventure, 1972, directed by uh, Ronald Neem. Wait, 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 wait. What? It's the 1972 one we're talking about? <laughs> I hate you so much. We're it's starting a new year. It's not the 2005 uh, miniseries with Adam Baldwin and Rutger Hauer and we, Steve Gutenberg. We're starting a new year, and that means we have to start with trust in one oh. another, and you are breaking that trust. Oh. Yes. What, what about Poseidon? The Wolf St. Peterson remake. <laughs> I don't even want to talk to you right now, because now you're making me second guess. Maybe I watched the wrong movie. Let's talk about Beyond the Poseidon <laughs> The sequel with Michael Caine and Sally Field, where they go back to the boat, <laughs> treasure hunters, to find a fortune. Oh, that's that's pretty good. Been made. I didn't even I didn't even watch the movie, but I did take a tour of the Queen Mary. That counts, right? I've seen the Queen Mary, but I haven't taken the tour. Oh, I had the tour. I have a I have a uh, I have a picture of me and my cousin. I think we really hated each other at the time. <laughs> Uh, and my and my folks holding a, ironically, holding a Queen Mary uh, life preserver, uh, which which I don't think bodes well. And they, they make you take the picture. At least they did for us. They made us take the picture on our way onto the boat, which which I think doesn't give you a good uh, feeling, even though it's like in dock. Right. You right. just sort of it's think much. it's just going to peel off and, and turn over. Yeah. yeah that thing this is... was many years ago. That was too funny. Yeah, it was pretty good. I got a hat. I got a, oh, I got a cool. Queen Mary hat. Uh, but yes, uh, we are doing uh, Poseidon Adventure 1972, directed by Ronald Neem. Uh, is that how you do it? Neem? Neem? Yeah. Neem? Neem. 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 Uh, uncredited uh, by Erwin uh, Allen. Uh, Which is, I, 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 don't, I haven't heard anyone say that Erwin Allen is the uncredited director. He produced it, but... Yeah. yeah I think Erwin Allen fudged his IMDb credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be uncredited on that too. <laughs> Have you read the uh, Paul Gallico uh, novel? I haven't. I haven't. But um, inter- interestingly, it sounded like he was actually on an ocean voyage. I, th- I thought he was. Was he not on the one that that tipped? Yeah, it was the, it was the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary it? that tipped. Yeah. Yeah, and it was in rough seas, and it like completely it started tipping, so it was like almost I don't know forty five degrees or something, and then it righted itself, which is what it's supposed to do when you don't have uh, you know investors hounding you to to get it to port yeah. unsafely. Um, yeah, and from that, it kind of spurred on the idea for him to uh, to write this book. What if? Yeah, this is a good what if. And that's that's the story that uh, that I heard too. It's this uh, that that you know when you start seeing things just slide sideways, and everybody falls uh, to the wall of the ship, to the interior wall of the ship. That's uh, that's enough to inspire a heck of a book. Uh, I have not read it either. This, this happened in 1942. Uh, this rogue wave uh, event uh, on which the book was based. The movie then uh, 1972. So um, it's it, this is one of those great 
uh, 70s blockbuster disaster films that are so uh, that that are so wonderfully characterized to destroy everything to really challenge our um, challenge our expectations and do it with an absolutely star-studded cast at the time Gene Hackman Ernest Borgnine Red Buttons Carol Lindley Roddy McDowell Stella Stevens Shelley Winters Shelley Winters is the only one trained to swim upstairs and down hallways <laughs> in this film. <laughs> I didn't know that's what they the uh, the women's swimming league trained people to they do. Do that's it's that is it's a, a more of a guerrilla event. They mm. it's, it's uh, special forces training to it's pretty really get them ready for their for their lanes. Uh, uh, Jack Albertson, Arthur O'Connell. Uh, it was it is a great great cast of wonderful seventies faces. Um, and I think this one holds up uh, better than the others in the category. What do you think? Yeah, I haven't seen. I mean, there's a lot in the category. I mean, you know, there's the airport movies, airport, yeah. airport seventy five, airport seventy seven, the towering inferno, um, the the swarm. I mean, Irwin Allen, who produced this, uh, you know, became known as the master of disaster, and because he was producing. I mean, he was a TV producer. He had done a lot of uh, those great 60s shows like yeah. Lost in Space, Land of the Giants. And he um, started making all these disaster films. This, The Towering Inferno, Flood, Fire, Hanging by a Thread, The Night the Bridge Fell Down, Cave-In, The Swarm. He also directed Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, the huge flop sequel, uh, when the time ran out. Uh, so he, he kind of led the charge for creating these because it seemed, you know, People were clamoring for watching Disaster. I mean, this was nominated for a number of Oscars, including uh, Best Picture, as was The Towering Inferno. So um, they clearly tapped into uh, something. Actually, sorry, this one wasn't nominated for Best Picture, but The Towering Inferno was. And um, But they, they had tapped into this, this thing. And um, I don't think I've ever actually seen The, the Towering Inferno completely. Uh, it never really... I never got into it as much as I enjoyed this one. And I think it's because this one, it seems like these are people who are trapped in this awful situation. They have to um, make a choice and to get themselves out on their own. And so they're, they are working to escape this, this sinking ship. In the Towering Inferno, it's like this building goes up in flames, and then you're, it's like the firefighters come in to get everybody out. Right. So it's, 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 I don't know, it's less interesting to me. And, and um, I mean, even the airport movies, it's kind of the same sort of thing. It's like, are, you, are they going to be able to save the people on the plane? This one, it's about, this, it's a very intimate story about these 10 people who uh, decide they're going to follow this, this reverend in their group and, uh, and try to get to the bottom of the ship, which is now the top because the ship is flipped over. And I think that's the thing that makes this one stand above all the rest of them. I, you know, I do too. I, apart from the fact that there, there really are some interesting characters in this, you know, in this film, I think, uh, the, the, the tale of their journey, there's, it's like a, it's a film of serial escapes, uh, that, you know, I, I find myself toward the end getting a little bit fatigued, 
um, you know, in the second half of the movie, I, you know, in that, in the mode of, okay, I get it. Uh, it's, it's another escape of a, of a creaky thing. Ultimately the characters, I think more interesting in this film to the point where you really do want to see sort of where they, uh, where they come from. I think the film, the, the writing, of the film is really, um, is really quite well done. It's artfully, uh, some of these sequences are really artfully delivered in particular, um, you know, for me, one that just really stands out is the initial performance we get from uh, Ernest Borgnine uh, and uh, Stella Stevens, um, his wife, in their, um, in their stateroom. Uh, we're just meeting them for the first time, and in just a few wonderful lines, we get everything we need to know about these two characters without them actually telling us. They're having an argument over something else, and over the course of this argument— uh, we discover that he is an ex-policeman who kept arresting her because she was a prostitute and he fell in love with her and wanted her off the street and now they're married. And the unveiling of their relationship I found really mesmerizing. I thought that was just one of those standout character sequences um, that that just sort of peppered this film um, in a really interesting way, long before the, the ship even uh, begins to the ship goes under. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they are a very interesting couple and it, uh, it, it really makes for kind of the, just this unforgettable element of the story. I really enjoy the banter between the two of them. It definitely, they, um, they have that, uh, love hate sort of relationship the way that it's played, you know, where, um, Stella's character is very, um, antagonistic toward him. But you also see that that touching moment when uh, she kind of says, you know, what she's nervous about. The fact that she thinks that she saw a guy on the ship who was like a former John. And it makes her uh, just kind of have this moment. And it, it, it's kind of touching for a moment. And you can see that there is this compassion between these two characters. And there's um, uh, a lot of love there, even though there's a lot of yelling for the most part. Yeah, yeah a lot of yelling. Uh, yeah. It's a lot of yelling, but it ends up being, uh, you know, it, it ends up being a really um, wonderful sort of payoff, um, you know, in the end when we finally lose her. Uh, and he gets to do his his scream, you know, the primal scream. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I ever cared about in the world, <laughs> you right. killed her, you <laughs> killed her. It it ends up it's it's a this this it is truly just sort of a, a Neanderthal moment of watching uh, Ernest Borgnine come unhinged, hanging off the side of the scaffolding. Uh, but but I think it ends up being um, being powerful all the same. It is. It definitely is, and uh, and uh, it's nice to see that moment and how his character. Um, I mean, he has clearly all this this anger, and he's always kind of fighting with everybody. But there also is a lot of love, and it's it is a very nice moment. As you know, this is one of those movies where I find. As long as I can get myself into the mindset of the movie when I'm watching it, then I'm good. But it's also a, a movie that um, has been, I, I don't want to say lampooned, but it can definitely be, um, uh, you can look at some of the, the dialogue and it can, be, uh, it can be rather silly if you're not really kind of in along with the characters, you know? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you, I mean, really? 
What are you? What are you? You think you're a god? <laughs> That's right. It, it, you know, it's like, uh, what is? What's that? Uh, you know, what? It, she doesn't have anything under under there. You know, it's the panties line. <laughs> yeah. or, she's got nothing under it. Just panties. Just what else panties, do I what need? What else? <laughs> That's right. uh, there's there's a lot of just funny stuff. I mean, and and the uh, the the thing when when um, uh, red buttons talks to uh, talks to the girl about her brother being dead, and you know the the, the way that some of the delivery happens. <laughs> That's it, I dead. mean, there's there's a reason. This is an interesting movie that. Um, has weirdly, and I didn't even know this, but it, it has created this like this cult following um, that all these people um, now they have like these annual Poseidon uh, Poseidon Adventure uh, get-togethers. There's this big fan club of uh, you know I don't know a couple thousand people or something like that. Um, they they do like um, uh, Rocky Horror esque screenings of it, where they kind of act it out as the movie's going. Uh, they've done a uh, like. There's this. Uh, there's this um, a play that this guy, who's I think he's the. I, I don't know if he's the one who created this fan club, but he's definitely in the fan club. And it's it's this um, um, this it's it's basically like a stage show that they do where it's it's an upside down um, thing where they're um, uh, they just do this. Uh, it's called Poseidon, an upside down musical, and um, it's it's just this silly play that is just kind of you know got the the hooker with the heart of gold, the Jewish couple, and it's just it's 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 something that people latch onto. It's just this, it's a it's very rocky. Thing. It's this Rocky Horror esque. It is because because you can look at these dial at the dialogue, and it's so it's it's a little over the top when you're in it. It's it's great, and you can totally get into it. But like I was saying, when you're not in it and you're just kind of looking at it from the outside, it can be, it can end up coming across very uh, almost like a parody of something like this. Um, so I don't know. I think it's I think it's funny. I, I enjoy the dialogue, but it is funny how you can step back and you can see it that way. I you know I know there is I, I know there is that ease, but I I think you're right. I I. I guess that's the right way to to put it for me that you have to be in the mindset to watch this movie but I would hope that one would not press play on the Poseidon adventure if you if one did not already have some sense of what one was getting into. Yeah, I mean I agree. I agree. It's uh it definitely feels like a a 70s uh disaster film and I think if somebody's putting in a 70s disaster film that this is what they should expect. Uh, and yet, uh, we we get a nice dose of uh, of of that sort of seventies uh, challenge uh, of organized religion. Uh, yeah. that, that sort of vibe of uh, man versus uh, man versus God, man versus the world that we get from Gene Hackman as his as his uh, you know his role as protagonist as as leader of the gang that that escapes, um, you know, fights and leads through strength. Uh, that that God doesn't need whiners, he says, and and that that uh, God doesn't have time for our petty. Um, uh, what is the word that he uses? Our petty, our pettiness, whatever it is. Uh, God doesn't have time for our daily woes, and so we just have to muscle through it, be strong, and and that's the the vibe we get from his uh, his opening uh, sermon, which really sets the stage uh, for the the fight for life as the as the uh, as the boat begins to sink and i you know it was actually 
I found it this time, um, and maybe the past few times I've seen it, um, but this time I was really paying attention to it. Uh, the whole religious angle of it, I found very interesting how uh, how Reverend Scott, uh, Gene Hackman's character, was really resolute to fight. You have to fight for yourself. God, God would want you to. God's not here to just save people whenever people need saving. You have to do that because God's given you the power to do that. I think that's a really interesting angle to look at. And you get him talking to that other uh, reverend that is on the ship. And the, it's kind of that battle of the of the uh, views and the, and the way that they both see things. And the other uh, preacher is much more of the mindset that, uh, you know, you've got to just trust in God. And I really like that battle between the two of them. Especially how it ends up playing out once once the boat's flipped, and uh, Reverend Scott is fleeing with these ten people to try getting up to the the uh, the top, and the other one decides to stay behind. Um, but it's also a really interesting look at. Um, so you've got the one Reverend who's who's going to fight to live, the other one who's basically giving up. But at the same time, I do like that how the other Reverend you can look at it like he's giving up, but you can also look at it where it's like no, he's also doing his job as a reverend and he's choosing to be there for yeah. um the people who who won't flee but he is he's the one who's going to give of himself um to make sure that they still feel like they are loved and taken care of that was absolutely what i took away from that sequence and i thought that was really interesting uh, uh sort of twist because in that light you can sort of uh, interpret that Reverend Scott is the one giving up, right? Mm-hmm. In in terms of his role as um, as a leader of the flock, right? Um, uh, I'm I'm sure I don't have the term right there. Right? I I don't even know what it is. But he is it, like his role is to you know the, the traditionalist role of the chaplain is to uh, you know in as purported in this film. Uh, is to to support and and you know lead the flock and to be be the one who sticks around during the last days to help people find strength and find uh, you know what they need to um, to be able to to reach the end uh, in peace and Scott's the one who again carries on his we have to fight we have to fight and leaves everybody there you know and so you're left to question I think. You know, did he do the right thing? Did he do the right thing for the film? Dramatically, obviously, he had to get get moving. But did he do the right thing to, you know, um, you know, to the the to the robes? Uh, I think that's the question. I think that makes it, you know, a, a more interesting sequence than just, oh my gosh, we got to get up on that balcony before the water comes in. Well, and I think what's also interesting about that is the fact that. It does play a little bit into it where when they get up to the uh, um, the bottom of the boat, um, the I can't remember what they call that area. Um, Down in the engine room when they're it, or up below, in the engine you know, room? Past the engine room up to where like the, the, the turbines are or whatever yeah. it is, up in that little top part. where the, the turbine the room. Hole, yeah, where the, <laughs> the hole is only an inch thick, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, they get there and... They still don't have a way out. And what I found really interesting is that it's almost as if um, there was this conversation between Reverend Scott and God, and it's almost like this challenge. 
if you can get the people up there, I will find a way to help them get out. And it's only because they're there that they happen to, at the the right time, when they happen to hear the people who have landed on top of the the sinking ship on the helicopter, they can hear them. And so they are able to start making noise, and that's how they end up being saved. So it's not like Reverend Scott really did have the answers. I mean, he he would have led them into a blind corner um, if if not for the this you know the hand of God reaching down and putting the helicopter uh, the the rescue uh, team right there above them. Yeah, was that so? So when do you think he had that that conversation with God? Uh, and because you know, I think there are to me at least there are sort of two. Um, there, there are two moments in the film where that that kind of realization for Reverend Scott happens. The first one is kind of early on, where he's having that conversation with the with the chaplain. You know, is it better to die on your knees, blessing the weak? Um, you know, and then he makes that choice to leave. And the second is his ultimate sacrifice, which you know, still as many times as I've seen this film, is is a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is is that the point where he he ultimately sort of declares? his own personal victory uh, as he's hanging from, he just gets them through the engine room and then falls to his own death. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would say yes, at least that's the point where I don't know if it's, it's his own victory, but it's certainly the point where he is to a certain extent. um, He can't go on any further. And it's like, he's now leaving it up to God, you know? Mm-hmm. And and he's and to them, I mean, obviously he tells Rogo to get them through, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that uh, there there's more at play there, and it's an interesting moment. Like if he didn't sacrifice himself there, um, would they have been saved? It's you know you can yeah. always ask those sorts of questions, and you know who knows because this is what we've seen. But uh, but it does play pretty interestingly the way that he has to sacrifice himself at that point in order for them to get through and get saved. Right. Right. Uh, how did that? How does that play for you? Watching happen, I, you like? I that? think it's. I think it's great. I mean, I think it's a very powerful moment when he's when he uh, you know jumps onto the uh, the um, uh, the the crank and it's like in the hot steam and he has to turn the valve wheel in order to um, to shut the steam off so that everybody else can get through. Um, and he's, you know, screaming at God the whole time. I think that's a very interesting scene. It's, I really enjoy that character moment for him, especially what we've seen so far. And then it's like that tragic sacrifice that he does there. Um, uh, really just because, I mean, there's no way for him to get off of that, you know? Right, right. Uh, it's, uh, I, I really, uh, I, it gets me. I, I like that moment quite a bit. Yeah, it, it's a it's a wonderful sort of payoff both for his his role as a as the uh, reverend and his sort of combative role with Rogo. You, you know, ultimately he he does it, he makes it, and they need and and he gets some sort of Rogo gets some sort of redemption there uh, in their relationship, and ultimately sees the the power of Reverend Scott's ideas. You know, we get that that payoff as well, which I think works well. Uh, Leslie Nielsen, hello. You know, the funny thing about Leslie Nielsen is he did this at a point in his career when he wasn't doing the funny stuff. Yeah. But but you can't watch him without <laughs> feeling like he's doing a parody. I know. He just 
It's like I cannot take anything he does seriously. And, and then he's got that moment. God, I just couldn't stop laughing when he's talking to his, uh, you know, his second uh, in command. And they're talking about this this uh, blip on the radar screen, this big wave. And then he looks up at him, by the way, Happy New Year. <laughs> so it's like, that felt like totally out of airplane. Exactly. What's that? Well, it's a holiday we celebrate at the turning of the year. And don't call me Shirley. I I have that moment at the beginning, right, as the, uh, you know, it's storming and, and the boy comes in and, uh, uh-huh. you know, he grabs him by the shoulders and he tells him, you know, get below decks. And I, I just can't, I can't watch that scene without hearing in my head. And have you seen any gladiator movies? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> But you know, you know that Leslie Nielsen, the dude can act, even though his part is small. <laughs> he pulls it off. Yes, he does. Yes, I enjoy watching him in just about anything. But this one is made so much the better, having recently seen uh, Airplane. <laughs> it's made, his role is made better for me. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, um, some other car- uh, other performances that stick out. Obviously, uh, Roddy McDowell, uh, the young Roddy McDowell. Oh yes, yes. Uh, as Acres, uh, he is fun to see uh, in this film. Yeah, this was uh, just a few years after he started doing the Planet of the Apes thing. Uh, the whole cycle that he got into with all those movies, right? Uh, it was a treat seeing him. It was a particular treat for me to see Jack Albertson playing op- op- opposite uh, Shelley Winters as Manny Rosen. Uh, again, mostly because we have just watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I guess it's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And, right, right, right. And, uh, and, you know, he, too, has that, that sort of Leslie Nielsen vibe, you know. Yeah, when we get to Israel, Charlie will have the ticket. <laughs> we'll have the golden ticket. Right, they never mention who it is that they're going to see in Israel. Exactly, uh, but it was a treat seeing him. Uh, I, in I, I, it's so funny because I, for some reason, I have just him glued in my head from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and it's as if uh, he doesn't exist outside of that film. Kind so of when like you we see talking. him, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's always Grandpa Joe, and it's like I can't picture him doing anything else. It's so strange seeing yeah. him in other things. So yeah, but uh, and he's an Oscar winner. Who knew? Oh yeah, he's a he's he's a uh, he's got uh, 179 credits to him. Uh, mm-hmm. He has uh, he's been around. Yeah, yeah. Best uh, so the subject was roses. 1968 supporting actor. Yeah, um, yeah. He was a treat. To yeah, see. It was great seeing him. Great seeing him, and I thought he and Shelley Winters made a, just an absolutely delightful couple. They did. I I really agree. And Shelley Winters, a fantastic swimmer. And <laughs> she put on thirty five pounds for this role, and trained with a yeah. uh, an Olympic swimmer to try to to. Uh, and she, you know, it's funny to watch her uh, interviews. Well, I'm a very good swimmer. I'm a very <laughs> very good swimmer. Uh, so she really was trained to swim up stairwells. Two months she did training uh, on this to to get the swimming so that she could do all of her own underwater stuff in this. Pretty pretty dedicated. You know, but it's funny is... because that scene, it pays off. It does. I mean, it's no uh, alien resurrection. <laughs> resurrection. If only there had been aliens in the <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
really sold. Uh, but it, it it pays off. It's it's good. To, you it's good to see her non stunt doubled uh, uh, saving uh, Gene Hackman, uh, who by all appearances was um, uh, trapped underwater under some tarpaulin. Uh, didn't look like he was under any great threat, but uh, but it was a, it was an intense sequence. What were yes. you going to say? I interrupted you. Oh no, no! I was just going to say that uh, you know this was a movie where everybody was trying to do their own stunts. Uh, they were really wanting to kind of create that sense of authenticity, and so uh, you know, Neem and Alan were kind of getting trying to get all the actors to do all their own stuff, whether it's you know climbing the ladders. Um, in, in the end, in the engine room, it was like this giant maze of all these pipes and and things that people were climbing across, and they all had to climb up. I can't remember. It was like you know two stories on these things to get up to the uh, up to the level, and they all did it. And and uh, Ronald Neem, he would go ahead and do all of it first to show everybody how safe it was, which I think is pretty funny. But uh, <laughs> and because he likes to climb on things, and because he's just a little monkey that. That Ronald Neem. Not, not often reported. <laughs> That's right. Can we talk, speaking of, uh, talk a little bit about set design? Yes. Because holy cow. Yeah. Uh, the production design, uh, uh, William Kriber, uh, set decoration, Raphael Breton. Um, this was a, a fantastic set. It was built based on very detailed blueprints of the, um, uh, of the Queen Mary. And... Um, Boy, you can really tell, in particular, the sequence uh, when, uh, you know, the, the rogue wave actually hits the ship and the, the ship goes over, that, that sort of slow tilt. Um, they built the set on a, what I, I can only seem to describe as a makeshift gimbal. It wasn't like a real rocking set. They actually lifted it up with a forklift, uh, but... Uh, but it absolutely plays really well as these people are thrown to the side and then eventually hanging upside down. And, and I think plays really well with the, the ad line, you know, the ad line on the posters, hell upside down. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, I think they do a fantastic job. Well, Uh, and it's the way that they did that gimbal, I thought was pretty interesting too. I think it was, it made it all the more effective because it lifted it somewhere between like 30 and 45 degrees. I've heard, you know, varying reports. And so they would raise it and they would film all the people going from regular level to about, you know, you know, 45 degrees up or so. Um, And then what they, and, and then, and they'd have the camera positioned, it would be locked down at that ground level so that everything would look like it's tilting. Um, I mean, our ground level, like we're outside of it filming as it tilts. Right. And then they would tilt the camera to uh, to match the uh, the tilt on the, the stage. So when it's at ground level, it now looks like it's 45 degrees. And then they would tilt it up again, and it would make it look like it was at 90 degrees. So that way they could get it to look like it was, it was uh, completely uh, sideways. And so they were able to... Um, really get a lot more out of it by uh, by playing around with the camera and the way they were shooting that. And then they just were yanking things through to make it look like everything was sliding and falling down. So it's very effective, very smart um, effects that they were figuring out. Uh, and, you know, the I think paired with the production design, we should also mention the mechanical and photographic effects uh, team of LB, Bill Elliott, or Abbott, and uh, A.D. Flowers, who I think... Uh, really came up with some creative stuff to um, to make all of this stuff 
really feel like we were in this boat and it was flipping over. It really does. These it, just practical, smart effects um, that, that really do look like they're putting the actors in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think they, they do a great job of, of making you really worry uh, that there's some sort of a liability issue. Um, I, I think it plays really well um, and and holds up surprisingly well uh, over, you know, these last, geez, 42 years. Mm, yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah, that's, uh, that, uh, God, let that sink in, 42 years. And it's still, uh, it's still a wonderfully um, intense disaster flick. Yeah, Absolutely. Who else do you want to talk about? Um, Red Buttons, I think, is uh, is fun to watch. I know we, we mentioned him briefly, but I just, uh, as somebody that I had never uh, watched that many in, in that many films before, it's uh, it's nice to see him pop up. And he's uh, typically a very kind of a comedic force, is what Red Buttons was always known for. Right. Um, so it's nice to see him do these turns that are a little more serious. And he had actually it was another Oscar winner. He won in a film called Sayonara in which he played a, a much more um, kind of dramatic role. And um, so it was nice to see him pop up in this. And um, gosh, who else? So I think we kind of ran through the gamut of the cast. Ernest Borgnine, of course, we've talked about a few times on the show. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, he just does this sort of part, part really well. It's always fun to see uh, uh, Ernie pop up and do something that's uh, <laughs> gruff. And uh, yeah. Yeah, he does it well. And Gene Hackman, I mean, geez, he coming off the French Connection. I mean, he was. I think they had started filming this when the Oscars happened, and uh, so they gave him a cake and everything because he won his Oscar for the French Connection while he was making this one. Um, obviously, you know, it's a uh, a great start to his career with the French Connection. Well, I mean, he had been in some other stuff, but the French Connection was really the big one getting the Oscar and everything. And according to Ronald Neem, uh, Neem said that um, he felt a bit like he was slumming it making this movie. And um, and he thought that Gene Hackman also felt like he was slumming it a bit uh, because it's this, you know, this big Hollywood disaster movie that, you know, it just seemed rather silly. But the way that it ended up being received, everybody ended up being quite happy with it because obviously it uh, did pretty well. What do you think? Uh, what do you think uh, Ronald Neem would have sent in a in a card on the release of Superman Four: The Quest for Peace? <laughs> right. He's, hey, go back check. to slumming it again. Yeah, that's right. How's John Cryer? <laughs> Jeez, was he in that? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Lenny. That is too funny. That's a that's a winner. <laughs> Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Gene Hackman, I, you know, I couldn't, I, I really, on the subject of Superman, boy, does he get some Miss Nessmacher screams in this film. <laughs> always, always a treat to hear Gene Hackman raise his voice. Yes. Um, and, uh, okay. So Gene Hackman, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about, uh, Ernie Borgnine, Red Buttons, uh, you know, there's Carol Lindley, Nani. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. Name of my neighbor's dog. Nani? Mm-hmm. Also what my kids call my mother. Oh. Yeah. Carol Lindley. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, they call her Nani. <laughs> Did you get that? That was a joke, but there was nothing there. There's no play, just a lot of dead air. It happens sometimes. You throw, You try stuff. 
Sometimes it happens. Yes. Uh, anyone else on the cast that you want to specifically call out? I feel I feel good. Yeah, you know, the kids I thought were fine. Eric Shea is, you know, I swear he was one of those kid actors that I had seen in things before. But I think that uh, he ended up kind of just uh, disappearing after this is what it sounded like. like. I don't think, I mean, he did a few more things yeah, he after did some this. TV but, and... Yeah, but, uh, you know, by the end of the 70s, he pretty much was out and uh, done with the, his film career. <laughs> yeah. Smart, um, get it while you can. That's right, that's right. But he was good. He was um, he he acquitted yeah, himself I, well. I think he's great, and his sister Pamela Sue Martin, I think, uh, mm-hmm. does a great job too. You know, I think that they all they all are uh, they all work well in the roles that they have, and I enjoy enjoy watching them all. Pamela Sue Martin, um, she you know I she's one of those that was that was weird to watch because. Uh, well, you know, I have a a thing with Dynasty. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she was Fallon on Dynasty for for several years, and so, uh, so that's where I knew her from. And so, but that was in the in the uh, in the eighties. That was a good, you know, ten years later. And I didn't uh, uh, I didn't have much of a sense for where she came from when I first you know started watching uh, Dynasty. She was also uh, Nancy Drew in the mm-hmm. late seventies. And so uh, I feel like I, I watched her on Nancy Drew, too, when I was a kid. That is funny. But yeah, then, she... again, nothing for uh, just a smattering of things through the 80s and 90s. And then yeah. uh, back in McTaggart's Fortune in 2014. Yeah. I That's crazy. Missed, the, missed that one, yeah. Huh. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> what? How could you possibly... <laughs> Have missed that. Like Taggart's fortune. Uh, Three high school students search for a lost treasure in their hometown, only to be haunted by the ghosts that protect the lost fortune. She was in Supernatural. Spelled soup-er-natural. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. I, uh, I feel pretty good about that. Um, How about uh, old Ronald Neem? Yeah, let's talk about him. Yeah. He's a, an interesting director who actually started as a, a cinematographer and then kind of uh, shifted gears. I mean, he, he did cinematography, producing, screenwriting, and directing. I mean, he kind of did quite a bit of stuff. And he worked with uh, David Lean on some of his uh, films in the 40s. Uh, I think he was producing with Lean on those and, and maybe writing some of those, like his uh, Brief Encounter, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he uh, moved into directing, I think, in the 60s. And I think uh, he did Judy Garland's last film, I Could Go On Singing. He did The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And, uh, and in the actually, he did some directing in the 50s, too, because lo and behold, he directed some films with uh, somebody we're going to be talking about fairly soon, uh, Sir Alec Guinness. He did uh, The Horse's Mouth and uh, Tunes of Glory. And then, of course, he did a 1970 musical version of Scrooge, all with uh, Alec Guinness. Oh, I love that. We should have planned Who that. Knew? Well, we did, is what you are meant to say. Uh, we, we, we planned totally that. Totally planned that. Uh, so <laughs> this one was, it was considerably late in his career, although uh, the dude kept directing uh, after Poseidon Adventure, a decifile meteor hopscotch, all the way to 1990's The Magic Balloon short— and he's still around, 99 years old. 
No, he died. He died in 2000. Oh, he died in 2010 at, at 99. Yeah. yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. He did a lot of stuff. He, uh, whew. Busy man. Busy man. Uh, Ronald, now what about uh, our, the, our slack-jawed uh, tr- IMDb trader, Erwin Allen? Yeah. He's a master of disaster. I mean, he's a he's a, an interesting character who uh, he actually uh, what did he say? Uh, there's a great something that he said when uh, um, uh, Star Wars came out because he had been making all these disaster films in the uh, in the 70s and is just kind of making a, a you know a big splash with all that stuff. And then uh, when Star Wars came out, he said something like. Um, you know, he he was bewildered by the fact that a film with apparently no stars or a love story could enrapture audiences so fervently. <laughs> and that kind of that really kind of spelled the end of his run of all of these uh, these big disasters. I mean, he he tried to do a few more after Star Wars. Uh, you know, he still kind of kept pushing to see, but they weren't you know as, as popular anymore. People were wanting to see all these uh, bigger uh, things like Star Wars. And uh, so his his um, well, yeah. especially interesting because he's the guy behind Lost in Space. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and the, he was behind. Uh, he created the show. I mean, he's and and um, uh, so I find it interesting that he has such disparaging things to say about Star Wars. Well, maybe Lost in Space had better love story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, don't I mean, know. it had June June Lockhart. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe that was the. I I'm now we're, we're talking about kind of Nick at Night territory for me. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know who was super popular in uh, Lost in Space, right? Um, besides, you know, who played the the bad guy? Uh, what's his name? Jonathan Harris as Doctor Zachary Smith. I think he was pretty popular. Yeah. Anyhow. You weren't a big well, Lost in Space fan, is what you're telling me. I I wasn't. Mm. I watched the movie. <laughs> I actually don't think I ever saw an episode of that, but really? I did see the I did see the abysmal movie version, which was really completely terrible. Oh, come yeah. on! I know Gary Oldman, William Hurt, Matt LeBlanc put uh-huh. a lot of big name stars in that train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, they did. Uh, See, just like he said, you got to put the stars in it. You got to put the stars in it. It can't be this Star Wars thing with no stars. <laughs> Are we? Uh, do we have? I no, I don't remember now. That we've, do we have any more giant disaster movies in our uh, slate for uh, for this year, this year? I don't think we're talking about any other big disaster movies, and we got uh, 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 none nope. of them ended up well, worth it as worth it as this one. Yeah. Not really. I mean, we're doing the Mad Max series, but that's a different that's sort That's a of different kind of a vibe. Different, yeah. No. Nope. All right. Well, I think this is a, a kicking way to open our 2015 season. I'm very excited about it. Uh, and uh, I, you know, how did it do when it first came out? Well, um, before we get to that, Pete. <laughs> yeah? Let's mention Sterling Siliphant, the writer, the screenwriter. Oh, and I've already been so complimentary about the screenwriting of this film. I know. It and seems here, like a horrible omission. It is a horrible omission. Jeez. All right. 
Uh, Sterling Siliphant, um, you know, a definitely a very popular writer um, this period of time. A lot of uh, a lot of people may know him for the uh, In the Heat of the Night screenplay that he uh, that he wrote, which was quite a great uh, great script yeah. for a great film. And then he co-created the TV series Route 66, and you know he just had a a very long career in uh, in television and in film, and made a lot of stuff. And then I believe what was it? He hit this point where he um, he started hanging out. It's like hanging out with Bruce Lee or something like that, and kind of changed his. Um, uh, just kind of the direction of his life, and and uh, he decided that he wanted to uh, leave, and he like he quit the business, and he moved off to Thailand, and he ended up just staying there for the rest of his life, where and that's where he died back in '96. So, just one of those weird things. He just you know decided to split. Dare to dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet he is responsible for a lot of really fun um, films. Uh, he's got uh, you know seventy writing credits, and I think uh, many of them, as I look at them, are worth uh, are worth checking out. Fun, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, not uh, not a lot of doorbusters after uh, Towering Inferno, but I think uh, you know. Well, and he, yeah, I mean, he came right back with Irwin Allen for the Towering Inferno yeah. too. You know, they kept working together for that yeah. one, so. I, this was an interesting, uh, just kind of a, a side note about this movie. Uh, I, we already talked about how he kind of had the, got this weird cult classic following and everything. But um, this is just a, a funny other addition to this, is that there is this weird appeal for this film to uh, kind of the, the gay crowd. There are a lot of gay people who really enjoy this film because I think it's like the, the 70s fashions. You've got just kind of uh, stuff that's very campy. And I, um, in kind of the production circles and everything, there was this, um, um, just a couple different productions that I was doing where we kept trying to find period things that we had to do for a shoot. And we ended up, um, people kept referring us to this one guy and we'd go to his house and he just had all this weird kitschy stuff. And he's, he's a, a very flamboyant gay guy. And, um, but he had his house totally decked out um, like different themes. And this one time I went to his house cause we were getting props for some, uh, fifties shoot that we needed. And he had redone his entire house to the Poseidon adventure theme because he was getting ready for a giant new year's party that he was going to have. And, and over the, and he proceeded to tell me how over the course of the night he was going to be kind of slowly tipping everything and kind of making it look like everything was <laughs> tipping over and being destroyed. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a very strange, uh, uh you know, draw that uh, that people have to this. But I, every time I think of the Poseidon Adventure, I always think about this guy's house and his big New Year's party where everything is going to be tipping over. So that is awesome. Yeah, just a random <laughs> story. It's awesome. Uh, it's good. I want to do yeah. that just around my office. Just as people come in, just start tipping things over. Right. <laughs> Ooh, sink a chip, sink a chip. Uh, all right. Now uh, you have to tell me how it did. This movie, uh, well, it did really well for itself. Like we said, this was the kind of uh, the uh, setting things off for this this uh, burst of '70s disaster films. I mean, you know, Airport had been before and uh, had been successful, but this is really the one that took off. 
and did really well for itself. The budget was about $4.7 million adjusted for today's dollars. That's about $26 million. For a big disaster film nowadays, you'd never spend $26 million. I mean, they're always like, what, you know, a couple hundred million yeah, on hundred million, huge right. things now. Um, it ended up uh, grossing $93.3 million, which is adjusted five hundred, almost $520 million. So adjusted profit per finished minute. This thing raked in $4.2 million per finished minute. And um, yeah, that uh, puts it at number 12 on our uh, adjusted for inflation list. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. It was the number one film of, uh, well, it came out uh, toward the end of 1972. So it was the number one film of 1973. It had made most of its money in 1973. And of course, The Exorcist, which came out at the very end of 1973, ended up, again, uh, kind of pushing itself up above this one. And it became um, the number one film for that year. But uh, yeah, two very, very big films right around there. Uh, you know, and it gets back to, I think, that 70s vibe, that, this idea of, you know, what is it that we're really wanting to see in the, in, in the 70s? How, it, how do these films become a, a, a cultural representation uh, of what's going on uh, at the time? And I, think it's a, I just think it's a fascinating, you know, it's, it's almost more of an interesting history lesson for me than, than, a, um, uh, than, than a cinematic one, even though there's so much good stuff going on. I think it's really fun to, to sort of use this as a mirror uh, of, of the period. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about this with some of our other older films. Yeah, Marathon like, yeah. Man. Well, and even just even going back even further to things like The African Queen, how yeah. there are films that uh, were made that you watch now, and you don't, it's like, okay, well, that's, that, that's entertaining, but there are things that are being established in that film, and African Queen certainly had some uh, pretty stellar camera work that was being done in that film for the time period. This film really was setting the bar for uh, kind of this effects work in, the, the, um, in this whole disaster world. And, and that's what really blew people away, is watching this whole boat tip over. I mean, people had never seen that before. And it really um, just kind of shook their world watching this. And that's something that I think people still latch on to. And, you know, I, I think it would be interesting to, in a couple years, show this to my uh, daughter and just kind of see if it's something that... Uh, that she latches onto. Yeah, I I know my kids will get into it as soon as we get past the opening, uh, <laughs> the opening uh, old people talking bit. <laughs> You're right. Yes. Yeah. So. Not so fun watching that anymore. <laughs> Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel and catch up with all of our old films, the films we've talked about. And let's see if this one breaks the top forty. Um, well, let's try. <laughs> I'm going to go with 40. Okay. Let's start with The Poseidon Adventure or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, it's not going to break the top 40. It's not going to break the top 40. <laughs> uh, yes, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yep. Yep. But we still love it. But we you. still love it, yes. <laughs> uh, the Poseidon Adventure or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Uh... I would go with Poseidon Adventure. I would too. I would too. Um, Poseidon Adventure or A Fistful of Dollars? Fistful of Dollars. No, yes. Fistful of Dollars. Poseidon Adventure or Buckaroo Banzai? Oh, Pete. Oh, Pete. Now, we're talking about which one I would put on first. Is that how we're going to do this? Well, yeah. I, I would put on the Poseidon Adventure first. 
Sadly, I think I would too. Sorry, Buckaroo. Oh, Buckaroo. All right, Poseidon Adventure or Moon? I would say Moon. I would probably do Poseidon Adventure. Just probably? Yeah, probably. Because I would definitely do Moon. All right, well, well, I'll give you Moon then. Poseidon Adventure or It Happened One Night? I would do It Happened One Night. Okay. The Walls of Jericho. (laughs) (laughs) That just came out on Blu-ray. Nice. I know. I'd love to pick it up. The Poseidon Adventure or Run, Lola, Run? Mm, Run, Lola, Run. Yeah. Um, How about the Poseidon Adventure or Gallipoli? I think I would do Poseidon. Yeah. And uh, there we are. 112 out of 165. I, I have to stop feeling bad about films that don't break 100. Yeah, we have we have like at least 150 or so movies that we love. Yes. Yeah. The, right. So it's... That's totally. okay. It's okay. It's okay, Pete. Yes. Right. You'll, you'll make it through this. I know. I know. I got it. I got this. <laughs> Uh, it's a good film. It's a good way to kick off the year. I'm excited about the series uh, that we have coming up. Uh, everybody, you should head over to Letterboxd uh, slash The Next Reel, and you can ca- see what we are doing uh, in at least the first six months of the year. Uh, right. We have the first six months posted. Uh, but don't worry. We've got the whole t- through 2020 uh, films <laughs> that we're going we're to talk about. We're just going to drip it out. That's right. That's uh, right. Uh, and so uh, check out the films and uh, so you can get ahead and uh, make sure you're you're watching the films before you listen to the show so we spoil them spoil them for you That's exactly yeah yeah we're going to be jumping into uh well like we mentioned sir alec guinness uh, you know we were talking i i can't remember how we came up to it with sir alec guinness well well actually it was interestingly you the reason we started this whole show the whole show yeah the yeah. entire concept of the show revolves around one of the movies in this series Man in the White Suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And then I, I think we just decided to do him because he's one of those actors that has been around and has done so much, but the vast majority of people today just don't seem to know him as anything except Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. Which is sad. It's really sad because he's he has a such wonderful range. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I think I'm, I'm just really looking forward to... Um, uh, to checking this film out, uh, checking the series out again, and I love starting with. Uh, um, well, are we starting kind with? Uh, the, are we starting with Man? We're, no, we're, we're not. not. We're starting with no. uh, uh, Kind Hearts and Cornets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that will be the first one, and, and the Lavender Hill Mob, the Man in the White Suit, the Lady Killers, and then we're ending with Murder by Death. Yes. Oh, I love that movie so much. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, so I'm. You know, I've only seen, I think, two of these. So I'm I'm pretty excited to jump into this one and dig a little deeper yeah. into uh, Guinness's uh, chronology. Oh, what a great series. Hey, go to, just go to Letterboxd and look. Just look at the posters. They just, they're all great posters. Yeah, they really are. They knew how to make good posters they back really, then. They really, really did. All right. I, uh, I don't have anything else. I got to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go... Uh, Eat some cake. <laughs> I don't have anything. <laughs> I gotta plan those better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
mine's super short. Oh, okay. Well, then go first. It's called Bad Movie by Bob. This was an awful movie. Gene Hackman was an embarrassment in the role he played. He was stupid, arrogant, and annoying. The end. Wow. I know. Wow, Bob. Yeah, Bob did not like this movie. It was a very bad movie. Full of arrogance and stupidity. That was a one star from Bob? No, five stars, interestingly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was a one star. Well, interestingly, mine is a one star, but they say it's just okay, which to me is like it's a two star, maybe a three star, but it's just okay. Apparently to flower power means one star. (laughs) Flower power says, first off, I thought it was based on a true story because, I mean, who wouldn't? (laughs) Because I read about that all the time. I wouldn't watch a movie like this if it wasn't based on truth. Why bother? What's the point? I guess I'm not a disaster movie fan just for the sake of watching a disaster. Man, this person, (laughs) this is great. (laughs) Even during the first 20 minutes, though, when I thought it was based on truth, I had to fast forward because some of the characters were just so irritating and it was boring. That's what you get for truth flower power. (laughs) Once I realized it wasn't true, I couldn't get into it and ended up fast forwarding through much of it because at that point, I really didn't care and just wanted to get to the ending. Surely Winters was great, Hackman and Borgnine enjoyable, but unless you're a disaster fan, I wouldn't recommend it. Surely? Surely Winters? (laughs) Surely Winters. Did she see the same movie we saw? (laughs) She saw the one with Surely Winters. With Surely Winters and Hackman and Borgnine. Yes, right. <laughs> Some of these titles are wonderful. I have we have uh taught, compelling, gripping, not, and bad acting, bad dialogue, and too much yelling. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon. I've been podcasting since two thousand six. In that time I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August twenty twenty two We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 